0: welcome to the sonic nuance electronics podcast today i'll be speaking with internationally recognized authority on music and technology craig anderton craig is a true renaissance man who has published over 35 books played on over 20 major label recordings co-founded a magazine and written over a thousand articles on technology and the arts his book electronic projects for musician published in the 70s, is a classic amongst boutique pedal builders. I hope you enjoy this interview. Thank you, Craig, for your time today. I appreciate you letting me interview you. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how you got interested in music and electronics?
1: Well, I was the kind of kid who always liked to make stuff. You know, and um, whether it was model airplanes or gliders or origami or anything, I just loved to make stuff. And we didn't have a lot of money, so a lot of the making stuff was a matter of necessity. If I wanted something, I would make it. And I got a when I was 10 years old. I got a transistor radio kit and then I got a guitar and that kind of set me in stone for the rest of my life. I really liked making the transistor radio kit, and I wanted a guitar because I had seen Andres Segovia in concert, Oh yeah. and I just thought he sounded incredible, and I wanted to be able to sound like that, and I also wanted to be able to play green sleeves anytime I wanted on guitar. So I got a guitar, and uh, I started writing songs, and then I got better guitars, and, and here I am. I'm, I'm still making things and playing guitar. <laughs>
0: So are you self-taught in terms of music
1: and electronics? I took lessons. I took classical guitar lessons for a while Mm -hmm. and um, discovered the Mel Bay. uh, I'm sorry, not Mel Bay, the Mickey Baker uh, jazz guitar method book. I sort of de-evolved musically. I started off in classical, went to jazz, went to rock, (laughs) and then went into electronics and DJing. So the thing is, all along the way, I, I never got rid of the other stuff. So when I was playing rock, I was thinking in terms of jazz. And when I was uh, mixing new age projects back in the eighties, I was like doing rock and roll miking. Like I did a classical uh, harpsichord album with uh, a lady named Kathleen McIntosh, who's an incredible harpsichord player. And uh, I ended up close miking it like a rock piano instead of doing the traditional xy harpsichord recording and she just absolutely loved it she flipped out and i don't know if i would have done that if i hadn't had you know rock and roll experience along the line so all those things sort of play into each other
0: interesting let's talk a little bit about your book electronic projects for musicians it's a bit of a classic can you get me some history on how that came about
1: well, this is this is kind of a long story. But, That's all right. um, it's it's an, again an example of how necessity is the mother of invention, and happy accidents can change your life. Um, I had started writing. Oh gosh, when I, I guess I was first published when I was sixteen or seventeen as a guest editorial in a ham radio magazine, and then I started writing for popular Popular Electronics. I think the first article I wrote was in maybe 67, I think it was 67 or 68, and they liked my music articles a lot, and I did quite a bit of writing for Popular Electronics, then unfortunately their editor, a guy named Perry Farrell, uh, was killed in a car accident, and a new editor came in, and he didn't want any music-related articles. Well, that was a primary source of income for me i mean th- this was back in the days when magazines paid actual money for articles <laughs> and so it was like "Well, what am i going to do now so I, I looked around at the very at the newsstand and i saw that there was a new magazine out called guitar player and i thought well okay that this is <laughs> this is a good start so i sent them a proposal for an article on how to build a headphone amp and they were very much against the concept of anybody building their own thing because they had run an article on an amp modification and apparently someone almost electrocuted themselves <laughs> So they, <laughs> uh, they were concerned about liability and all that and i said no no no, it's nothing to worry about it only has a couple batteries in it it's fine but still they were very skittish about it but i i kept pestering them because i thought a headphone amp was a good idea so finally they went to alembic you know the, the guitar making company up in uh, I guess it was up in Mill Valley or Uh uh, San Rafael, yeah. and said, so we have this schematic here um, of this headphone amp. Can anybody destroy the world with it or themselves or anything? And Alembic said, no, 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 it's not a problem. It's fine. So I think just to get rid of me, they decided to to run the article. And uh, I said, well, I'll send you the schematic for it. And they were like... "Um, now we have our own art department and we wanted to have our own look so we'll we'll do the schematic and i said well that's that's kind of fraught you know because uh if there's any errors they said no no no, it'll be fine so they published the article and there was an error in the schematic and it could not work (laughs) Uh, but this was the but this was the best thing that ever happened to me because they received over 300 letters from people that ranged from, hey, I'm like building my first electronic project. I'm not having much luck with this, to, uh I'm the audio specialist engineer at National Semiconductor, and there's a mistake in the schematic and there's no way it can work. So because of that response, they thought, well, gosh, I guess there are people who want to, you know, build projects. So they came to me and said, well, do you want to do another one? And I said, yeah. And so I did a treble booster. Mm -hmm. And that also went over well. And then they said, well, can you come up with a book of projects? And I was like, well, sure. You know, I'd never written a book before. But again, I was sort of desperate at that point. (laughs) I said, yeah, I can I can can do a book. And so, you know, fine. So about a month later, they called up and I really hadn't done anything on it because I, I just didn't even know where to start. And they said, you know, so how's the book coming along? uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fine, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, and they said, oh, well, great. Can you send us an outline? And then all of a sudden the light bulb went over, on over my head, you know? So this is how they do it. They do an outline and then they flesh it out. I had a Volkswagen, a 1966 Volkswagen, and there was a book called how to keep your Volkswagen alive, a guide for the complete idiot. And I knew nothing about cars. I mean, I knew that they rolled and you put gas in them and you should check your tires and oil. And that was about it. <laughs> But this book taught me how to do things with cars. It taught me how to do everything. I mean, I was changing oil and adjusting brake pads and timing and points and stuff. And looking at the book, I realized that the the author, a guy named John Muir, had written everything in in the exact right way to teach somebody how to do stuff that they'd never done before. It was like, first, it explained the terms. Then it told you the tools you were going to need. Then it told you the techniques for those tools. Then it gave you the actual procedures and then the troubleshooting, et cetera. So I realized that that was the outline for electronic projects for musicians. First, I had to tell people what the parts were. Then I had to tell them what tools they had to use and what circuits were and then give each project and and so on. So I came up with this outline and fleshed it out. And the book came out in, uh, I think it was 75 or 75 or 76. No, I think it was 75. And, um, and there it was. And that was successful. Uh, so then they wanted to do another one. And that's how home recording came about. And then, you know, here I am. I think, 38 books later or something like that. But it all started because they made a mistake on a schematic, and John Muir wrote a book about Volkswagens, <laughs> and I needed the money. So. <laughs> that's great. Did I, you... You'd also asked about how oh, I'd educated myself in terms of the electronics. Yes, yes. And there's another. that's another interesting story. I was buying parts at a surplus place in Oakland, Godbout Electronics, um, which was a very cool parts place. You could buy all kinds of like surplus components for cheap. And uh, Bill Godbout was a great guy. Unfortunately, he got killed in one of the in the in the Paradise fires last mm-hmm. year in California, which is which was a shame. But he was very giving with his knowledge. One day I walked in and he said, "Hey, you're an artist, aren't you?" And I said, oh, "Yeah." He said, "Well, listen, I'm kind of in trouble. I have to go to to uh, Toronto tomorrow and pick up a whole bunch of 8008s. So I have these you know chips, mm-hmm. semiconductor chips." and I have an ad that's doing radio electronics and I don't have time to do an ad. Can you do an ad? And I said, well, yeah, of course. Of course, I'd never done an ad before. (laughs) Um, But but I was like, yeah, I can do an ad. And uh, I said, so, you know, what what kind of size is it? He says, well, I want to do a sixth page. He said, uh, you know, after you do it up like, you know, two times or four times, you can take it to Technoprint and they'll like shoot it down and give you the negative and all that. And another light bulb went on over my head. So that's the way they do it. They do it up big and then they shoot it down to make it look good. So I did this ad on a Selectric typewriter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously. And it it ran and it got a huge response because it looks so different from everything else in there. That, you know, this was back in the days when when magazines had, you know, bingo cars, you'd fill out the little circles and get yeah. literature and stuff. Yep. yep. They, didn't have, they didn't have links back then to the Internet, you know. And so he got this huge response. He thought, oh, my gosh, this guy must be some kind of genius. Um, whereas actually the, the truth is I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I just really lucked into it because, again, it, it just got everybody's attention because it looks so different. And so then I thought, well, gee, um, he then he wanted more ads, of course. And at that point, I thought, well, I better start studying up. So I started studying you know, books about advertising and realized that I should do whatever the opposite is. So one of the maxims back then was never do an all-text ad. So I thought, OK, let's do an all-text ad. Because <laughs> this, this was back in the days when there was like polymorphic systems showing off their S100 bus computer and they had a model in a bikini holding a computer, you know. And I did this ad about why static RAM was like the most wonderful thing on the planet compared to dynamic RAM. And it was like total, a total geek out. Um, but again, it got a huge response. I think it was because people would be flipping through the pages and they'd say, okay, do I want to buy a computer from this company that has a model in a bikini or from these people who sound like they're totally geeked out about putting the right kind of RAM in their computer. So, um, slowly but surely, I just kept doing everything wrong. Um, we advertised in, in little, uh, Newsletters for like the New England Journal of Podiatric Medicine or whatever that had a circulation of like twelve hundred people, but they all needed computers, so that was that was very successful. And in the process, this intersected with electronic projects for musicians because Godbout ended up doing the parts kits for them. And we spent a lot of nights at the Hyatt in near the Oakland Hotel uh, near the Oakland Airport at the Hyatt Hotel having dinner, and he would draw circuits on napkins, and we would talk about parts and I learned an awful lot about electronics from him. And then also, back in those days, because I was a published author, which actually meant something, uh, companies were willing to educate you. Like I could ride away to Texas Instruments and say, hey, I'm writing an article for you know, guitar player or popular electronics or whatever that uses your XYZ 2000 chip, and they would send you a couple samples, and there were data sheets, and they would also give you data books uh, with representative circuits. So from there, it really wasn't too hard to figure out, you know, get a little breadboard and stuff parts in and see what happens and make sure it didn't blow up. And, you know, if it worked, it worked. And with audio circuits, of course, so much of it is subjective. I mean, what's a good guitar sound or a good tone control or whatever uh, that I would end up modifying circuits designed for consumers to be more oriented for, you know, guitar players like a uh, A good example is I used a a compander chip for telecommunications to make a a really inexpensive vocoder. And I used a phased lock loop chip, which is designed for like FM receivers and things like that, to make a ring modulator. So, um, you know, a lot of it was self-discovery. A lot of it was uh, listening to Bill. And then the other thing, which is going to sound a little bit weird, is that um, I do think that mechanical things have a very primitive form of consciousness, and you could look at the way parts interacted with each other and how a circuit worked and what they would have to do in order to accomplish something. And when you look at components from a more um, personal level, shall we say, and how they worked together and what they did, that kind of made circuit design a little bit easier as well.
0: Can you expand on that last point?
1: It's kind of difficult. Um, actually, a, g- a good example is a car. A car is really very similar to humans from from one standpoint i mean they have a central nervous system they have uh, basically a heart that beats they have a circulatory system where the oil and the fuel happens they, they need fuel They i mean they they have a lot of similarities with with humans and um i'm sure you've you know if you rent a car you can rent like five different cars that are have about the same mileage and they're the same chevrolet or ford or whatever and they, and they feel quite different and um again it's not it's like you know this uh, th- this planet is just lousy with life. I mean, there's life everywhere. No matter where you look, there's plants, there's microbes, there's things in the air. There's there's all these different zillions of life forms, and they all have some kind of consciousness. Dogs have consciousness. Cats have consciousness. Um, you know, you could walk. You know, if there's an insect, and and you're about to squash it, and you start looking at it that way, and hold your hand over it, it's going to start running. And then there were those famous experiments, Cleve Baxter did with uh, with polygraph machines and plants, which was he was a lie detector expert. And, you know, you look at things like that and you go, well, that's just snake oil. But then I actually made a a, a primitive polygraph and I, and I duplicated his tests. it's like, wow, these, you know, these plants actually react to your thoughts. Now, whether they're picking up on your thoughts or you're transmitting something that they're picking up on or whatever, uh, you know, no one really knows. I certainly don't know, but, um, I think that humans tend to underestimate, uh, the ability of things we normally don't think of as sentient as being sentient. Like when you think of the uh, app, well, just uh, here's a good example with an op amp. An op amp is kind of human in the sense that it has unlimited potential, but it has negative feedback to keep it from like going completely crazy, you know? (laughs) And you take the output back to the input, it feeds back, it learns from, from processes, just like, I mean, we all learn from feedback, we do something, you know, you're a kid, you touch the stove, it hurts, okay, you know not to touch the stove, or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, but circuits, you know, there are things that they like, and there's things that they don't like, and there are certain frequencies that they're happy at, they, they can, they can self-oscillate if you're not careful about them, they can have hang-ups and, and problems, you know, and you want to see what what those where those problems lie, what causes them difficulty, and try to fix those things. Uh, and then the other thing is that there are, there are parts that, that do things that no one really expects them to do. For example, one of my favorite parts in the world is the red LED, not because of its light characteristics, but because of its distortion characteristics. Uh, another guy who's a big fan of red LEDs is Tom Schultz, by the way, the guitar player for Boston. We had quite a discussion about why red LEDs make great distortion elements. Music, great and the,
0: guy. I, and I'm a huge uh, fan of his work, both musically and electronics-wise.
1: Well, I mean, he's into it, you know. And and the thing about red LEDs, and I, don't, I don't want to get too too deep into the physics of it and all that, but the thing oh, is, yeah. is that there is a there is capacitance in there, uh, and it does. Uh, you know, as you put more current through it, um, the, the tone changes. So, like, the tone, if you're playing a rhythm guitar through it, it's very different from if you really crank it up and put, a, put lead through it. And it has a natural sort of soft distortion. It doesn't hard clip. And also the, the voltage at which it clips is, like, perfect for guitar pickups. So you can cut off the transients of guitar of you know like the, the pick transients and things like that so it acts like a mechanical limiter you can get like six to ten db higher average level from the guitar going into a digital circuit without any distortion or problems like that because the peaks on a guitar are so high and so short duration that you can cut them off and you don't perceive any distortion you don't perceive any problems at all hmm. and so it's it's really good for that there was a, in fact i i made a circuit called a transient tamer it's two back-to-back red leds and gibson put it in their high-end uh, less ball standards for a few years in fact i think it still isn't in, in some of the newer models and there's a dip switch and you can like enable it if you want to And I remember reading one review uh, of it that said, you know, I I enabled it and I didn't hear any difference. I thought, great, that's exactly what it's supposed (laughs) to do. But I bet that if he turned, I bet he found that he could turn up the input on his audio interface six to 10 dB higher. and, And another thing, CMOS switches, they They make them now so that you can't really do some of the tricks you could do when they were young. But CMOS switches like the 4016, if you biased them linearly, sounded like tubes. I mean, they were amazing. I did this thing called the Tube Sound Fuzz. If you search Tube Sound Fuzz on the Internet, you'll find a zillion variations by companies. I think the Red Llama distortion, I think they're one of the companies that say that that's where they got the idea from. Hmm. So, again, it's looking at those components and saying, what are they really? What is their personality? You know, the red LED, you could be told that it's there to make a red light, but you look at what it is and what its makeup is and its background, and you can see that it has a very different function if you wanted to.
0: That's interesting. I'm also a big fan of electronic surplus uh, stores. I grew up uh, around those and I used to hang out and geek out myself. So. Unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of those left. But if you can find one, there's one in Berkeley that's really good. I forget the name of it. But anyway, they're around, so if if you can frequent them, I, I highly recommend it to anybody listening.
1: Well, we don't have Radio Shack anymore either, so that that yeah. that makes life difficult when you have it when you have a fix for 741 op amp at midnight, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Mauser and DigiKey, they they ship pretty fast, but mm-hmm. yeah, yep. it's not the same um that's funny you brought up tom schultz i i'm also i play bass and uh i love his bass playing i don't think he gets enough credit as a bass player but that's an aside the book electronic projects for musicians there's a forward in it by joe walsh how did that come about
1: uh that was just luck um he you know he's the solder head he was a ham radio operator and uh, this was before he was in the eagles uh-huh. and it was known that he tinkered with stuff and it was through guitar player i guess they you know they'd interviewed him or whatever and he said he was into electronics and they said hey you want to do a forward and he said yes you know it's one of those one of those examples of um you know you don't know if you don't ask <laughs> no. You know, and one other thing I should add about the education aspect was, um, you know, I was in a touring band for several years. And, of course, we would play about 250, 260 days out of the year. But on those remaining days, I took advances against royalties. And instead of, you know, spending it on drugs and hookers like I was supposed to, I got an oscilloscope and a bunch of parts (laughs) and I put together a lab. So um, that gave me the time to actually do things. You know, I still had a source of income coming in from the albums and stuff like that.
0: Interesting. The boutique pedal market has sort of exploded since your book has come out. What are your
1: thoughts on this? Um, Well, you know, a lot of those companies reference electronic projects for musicians as as where they got started. So that's kind of cool. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, unfortunately, I, I kept them from having high paying jobs in the in the defense industry, but, um, <laughs> you know, but that's life. They they wanted to make circuits, they made circuits. I think the cool thing about the boutique builders is, you know, analog electronics is pretty forgiving, and uh, kind of an infinite variety of things you can do with it. You know, digital multi effects when they first started out had had real limitations. And people wanted effects. And I think that there's something about um, it's something that anybody can do, you know. Uh, well, maybe not anybody, but anybody with with circuit design chops can put together a circuit, put it in a metal case, put some cool graphics on the front, take it to a show and see what happens. You know, so, um, you know, so why not? <laughs> that's, about, you know, that, that's that's the only that's the only reason I can think of. <laughs>
0: Uh, you mentioned digital. Um, what's your interest in digital processing
1: these days? Well, you know, I really don't do much circuit design anymore, much analog circuit design. Um, and part of that is because I don't really have a lab set up. But the other thing is that I've kind of done pretty much all the analog stuff that I want to do. Uh, I mean, that may sound—I I don't want to sound like eh, everything that can be invented has been invented. It's not like that. It's just I'm always looking for new things to do and what i've been doing a lot of these days is working with plugins and things like the fx chains in studio one and the sonar or cakewalk has fx chains too and once you can like the one in studio one is unbelievable it has a splitter module it has it's basically a, a construction kit for effects and you can have parallel effects and series effects and parallel series and, and zillions of different combinations. They have a splitter module that can do five different frequency band splits, for example. And you can have as many splitters in an FX chain as you want. So I can do multiband processing incredibly easily. I can take a signal, split it into five bands, try different distortion types on each one or different delay types or different chorusing things or whatever, and put all this stuff together, you know, prototype these basically these incredibly complicated effects in like, you know, half an hour or an hour and tinker with it and play with it and uh, bring out controls to strategic places and do automation. Uh, All things would be almost impossible to do with analog electronics. And that's also why I'm into amp sims. Um, You know, there's a whole uh, anti-amp sim purist movement, you know, tubes forever kind of thing. And and that's fine. You know, amps amps are cool. Um, but the thing is that the thing that intrigues me about amp sims is not to sound exactly like a Vox AC30 because we already have Vox AC30s. What intrigues me about amp sims is you can almost do the CGI equivalent of an amp, just like CGI graphics. Like when when you do a a ball in CGI, it's perfectly round and shiny and spherical, you know? And I'm always looking for that perfect round, beautiful mind-boggling guitar tone and i can get that with amp sims by doing multi-band techniques like i I just did a a set of presets for the helix for the line six helix uh, which makes multi-band processing really easy split the guitar into three or four frequency bands distort them individually combine them back together again and now all of a sudden you have this incredibly focused beautiful defined articulated guitar sound that you just normally cannot get with distortion and you can do tricks like pulling back the drive on the high band so that the strings the upper the upper strings and harmonics kind of ring out without too much distortion and then you have this really beefy low end or you can make the rhythm side chunkier and put the leads like into super distortion if you want to and to me this is an incredibly creative thing that's the same thing as what i used to do with analog circuits but instead of saying gee what happens if i put this resistor here it's more like gee what happens if i put this filter in front of the reverb you know, kind of thing so i i can't write code and i don't do dsp i mean i don't do this on a, on a on a writing code for chips level but in terms of assembling these different digital modules and creating something new i mean one of the things i should also mention about the fx chains in studio one is you're not limited to using bare effects in it so you can use third-party, you know, as long as it's VST compatible, or, or in the case of the Mac, as long as it's AU, you can stick it in there and do things with it. So you can create these, these monster, amazing effects and save the whole thing as a preset. So that's, that's fascinating with digital, and, and, and uh, I just, I just, lo- I've never been happier with the sounds that I'm getting from, from my guitar. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like. I just love listening to it. It just sounds so just sounds so big and round and stereo and huge and defined, and you know, really nice.
0: Studio One. can you explain what that is for my listeners?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's say Ed. Uh, it's a, it's called a digital audio workstation, which I think is a horrible name. Um, obviously, engineers came up with that, and m- not marketing people. <laughs> but it's a multi-track recorder in virtual form that you can load into you know any Windows or Mac machine, basically. And you have unlimited number of tracks, and you can have plugins you can load in for signal processing. Um, and it does MIDI as well. So you can trigger virtual instruments, keyboards and, and things like that. If it's, people aren't familiar with what MIDI is, uh, MIDI is a language, a computer language that's very much like, um, think of it this way. when uh, there's, a, there's a thing called ASCII, which is a language for computers that specifies characters. So if you type an A on your keyboard, it sends an ASCII code to your computer. The computer knows that it's supposed to display an A on your screen or print out an A on your printer. Well, MIDI, if you play a uh, you know, a keyboard and hit a middle C. Then you send out a piece of data that says, "Hey, it's a middle C." And the computer receives it and knows to play back a middle C from a virtual instrument or record it into your multitrack recorder or whatever. So that's um, you know, that. That's the short form. I mean, a program, a program like Studio One, basically emulates what, say, a, a half million dollar studio did 15 years ago or 20 years ago and it's the same thing with logic or pro tools or ableton live cakewalk i mean any of these programs um you know i mean there's even inexpensive ones like mixcraft which are equal to a 450,000 dollars studio 15 years ago you know um but they're i mean they're they're basically the whole thing they they they're as many tracks as you want buses virtual mixers the whole thing <clears throat> all sitting in your computer which actually is, is one of my pet peeves these days, actually, is people go out and they they buy something like Pro Tools or Studio One or whatever, and then they go, "Gosh, this is so counterintuitive." You know, it's it's like, well, it's like it's it's the same thing as if you'd gone to Record Plant back in 1985. <laughs> And they said, hey, we got good news. Your studio time's only a dollar an hour. And they go, great. And they said, but here's the bad news. There's no engineer. Here's the keys. Good luck. <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you going to do? And, and it's like, no, just because it appears on a computer doesn't mean that it's easy. I, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I tell people is no one goes into Guitar Center, buys a Strat, brings it back a week later and says, oh, man, this Strat really sucks. I don't sound like Jimi Hendrix. You know, it's like it takes practice, it takes work, it takes discipline to learn to learn these things and get the most out of them. The one real advantage of the computer based stuff is that you can take it a piece at a time and you can start by learning how to record an instrument. Then you can start to learn how to process it. Then you can learn to mix. Then you can learn to master. And in that respect, it's never ending. But it's not um, I mean, it's 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 never been easy to make music. It's never been easy to do recording. And just because it's on a computer doesn't make it easy.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up in terms of uh, studio equipment. Studio quality equipment is a lot more affordable for everybody in general. Um, how has that changed the landscape of original music?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's been good and it's been bad. So here's the thing. We are now in a golden age of recording. I mean, we really are. If you want to make music, you can. You can afford to do it. You can put it up on YouTube. You can get it on Spotify. Uh, I mean, that's that's great. That's what that's the way music should be. That's, that's the good news. The bad news is that there's no filtering anymore. Uh, record companies used to provide filtering through their A&R departments. So for example, if you were into Caribbean music and you liked the albums that Mango put out, Mango was like a boutique label, if you bought one mango, you're probably going to like any mango album. And Wyndham Hill was like a famous new age label. And if you liked one Wyndham Hill album, you'd probably like any Wyndham Hill album. Um, and there was, you know, there were certain you had a certain guarantee of what was coming out that it it had at least interested some some record company executives. And you really don't have that anymore. But the the thing that I find more um, disturbing, for lack of a better term, is people keep thinking that it's that music is a business. It's something you should make money at, you know? Um, And it's like, well, gee, how can I make money streaming? How can I make money putting stuff on YouTube? I don't think that's what music is about. I think music is about a process of learning and self-discovery and expression. I mean, music is a language. It's a means to communicate with people. And if you think about it for a second, music has only been something you could freeze dry and play later for like a little over a hundred years, what 120 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Before then all music was spontaneous. All music was live. All music was evanescent. It, if you missed Beethoven's fifth, you missed Beethoven's fifth. I mean, you just, you know, you weren't going to you weren't going to buy a record. You weren't going to hear it on the web. If someone said, Oh man, Beethoven's fifth was amazing. You're like, well, okay, gee, <laughs> thanks for sharing. You know? Um, so I think that I think it's great that people can express themselves, but that doesn't mean that that other people want to hear it necessarily. I think that I mean, if, if someone told me that no one would ever hear my music ever again, I would still make music, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at some points in my life, I've made a lot of money off of music. And at some points in my life, I haven't made any. But the one thing that's consistent is that I make music and people come up to me all the time at seminars. And it's like, well, how can I have a career in music? I say, listen, here's the deal. First of all, there's not, you know, record companies used to look for the next Prince or the next Springsteen or the next this or the next that. There is no next this anymore because it's all available 24-7 on the Internet somewhere. Any music that's ever been recorded is, is out there to be heard. You're competing. With all these people, you're competing with Tom Petty and ABBA and, you know, Dick Van Dyke, not, not Dick, Paul <laughs> Van Dyke, Paul Van Dyke and Tiesto and things like that. Those are the people you're competing with, not just the band down the street. So first of all, you have to do something that's different. You can't sound like other people. It has to be original. And so the only way you're going to be successful is if you do what comes true what truly comes to you, what truly is an expression of your personality and what comes naturally. And then if it resonates with people, you'll be successful and you'll have a career because there's no artifice involved and you didn't have to like make stuff up and lie. I mean, you didn't have a focus group. You just, it came from the heart. People liked it. As long as you can keep stuff coming from your heart and people like it, you're in good shape. I said, but spoiler, spoiler alert, the odds of that are very remote. The odds are that people will not like your music. It's a very personal thing. If you think about it, you know, it used to be a big deal to sell a million records now in a country with, you know, 300 or 350 million people. That's a very, very small percentage of the population compared to the percentage of the population that eats food or drive cars or looks at movies or anything else. So what I advise people is, look, give it a shot, be yourself. If it doesn't work, just keep doing music for your own pleasure. I mean, people used to have pianos in their living rooms, you know, before before they had phonographs and things you know, things like that. Music, playing a musical instrument was considered part of being a well-rounded person, and it wasn't looked upon as a way to make a living. It was looked upon as a necessary part of education and human development. And now we have the tools that enable anybody to do that, with computers and make great music and have a great time doing it. And if that's all they do with it, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's great. Put it up on YouTube. So maybe you get, you know, whether you have 50 followers or 10,000 followers or a million followers, it doesn't matter. You've made your statement. It's out there. And if people like it, they'll click on it. And if don't, well, then you're doing it for the hell of it and you're having a good time.
0: That's an interesting perspective. And it reminds me, uh, you mentioned classical guitar. I also play classical guitar and, um, I got the impression, especially with the Renaissance music that a lot of people would play for their own pleasure because that was their entertainment. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. They would just buy sheet music and, and play a song that was popular like green sleeves.
1: Well, yeah. And you know, the, the other thing is that, um, you know, people come up to me sometimes at seminars and they say, oh, man, you were alive in the 60s. There was all that great music and Hendrix and the Doors and, you know, the Beatles and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but there was a lot of crap too, you know. <laughs> um, I'm sure, that you know, Bach has risen to the top, but I bet there were a lot of Bach wannabes at one point, you know. And they haven't made it, they haven't fared the, the transition through the centuries very well, but Bach made it and, you know, Chopin made it, a few others made it. Um, but I think that the... There's a lot of great music happening now. People, there are always going to be people who say, oh, you know, music was great when I was growing up, and now, you know, there's nothing good anymore. That's just not true. There's, there's fantastic music being released on, you know, constantly. I, I love Caribbean music, Zouk and soca and things like that. You go to some of the internet radio stations from Haiti or French Antilles, or you listen to a group like Kassav, and they're making fantastic music, you know. They just don't get enough of an audience because, again, we don't have those filters you know but there is some uh, afro pop there's some afro there's there's a uh, stuff coming out of, of kenya you know there's i mean there's 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 more music than ever before there's all kinds of experimental music that's going on there's um so i think and and, and then you have people who say oh well rap you know i'd never listen to any rap and i said well look let's suppose you didn't know anything about rock and roll and you went into and and, and you just clicked on like 10 rock random rock songs, you know, would you probably, would you like all of them? Well, no. And you know, and I said, well, look, there's going to be in any genre, there's going to be 5% of it. That's really good. Another 5% that you like, and then the rest, you really don't want to hear and that's okay. But there, I said, there's some really good stuff happening with hip hop. There's some really good stuff happening with rap. You know, the first time I heard public enemy, it totally blew my mind. It was like, wow. So this is why samplers were invented, you know? And, uh, and the same thing with DJs. You know, um, when you say DJ to most people, they think, oh, somebody who plays Barbra Streisand songs at a wedding. You know, but when you see a really good DJ who really knows what they're doing and working their equipment, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing experience. You know, you just your jaw drops. I mean, it's like, you know, if you if you'd never seen Eddie Van Halen play guitar before, you you see him and you go, my God, that guy can play. And it's the same. You know, some DJs are just absolutely amazing. But if you go and, you know. Go to clubs and see 20 DJs. The odds of finding that mind-boggling, amazing DJ are are relatively relatively remote. You go to 100 clubs and you'll find four or five. You know, so it's it's up to us to to find the stuff. But that's getting harder than than ever too. You know, there's just so much out there. I I you know if if we if we had more time, I could tell you how we can fix that. But that's a whole other topic.
0: Um, you mentioned some things that you've done in the past for a living. What do you currently do for a living?
1: Um, it's a mixed bag. You know, um, I still do a lot of writing. I do a lot of content and um, you know, I, I'm doing some self published books these days because I'm finding that they do better than going through publishing companies. Cause a lot of publishing companies don't realize that it's now the 21st century, you know, and they still think that that paper and trees are the way to go. Um, but there's a lot being able to deliver information electronically is a a huge improvement. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the, these uh, books like electronic projects for musicians is still selling because you can still buy op amps and opto isolators and things like that. I mean, it's not doing what it did back in the day because you can download it for free from 40 billion websites, but still, I mean, it's, it had legs and home recording for musicians until digital came along Uh, When people were using tape, it, it had, I mean, it was it had what a 10 or 15 year life, something like that. Nowadays, if you write a book about a software program, it's got at most a year. If you write a book about how to buy audio interfaces, at the most it has a year. And so I feel that the way to handle that is to do electronic publications. Get them out quickly, get them out very inexpensively because you don't have warehousing and shipping and uh, printing and paper and all that stuff. So you don't have to charge a lot for them. And a lot of the traditional publishers are charging for electronic books what they charge for paper books. Or they say, well, electronic books aren't that that much a part of our sales or whatever. But um, – you know, like I, I just did a couple test books, and and I mean they did really well. And I'm getting ready to the point now. Where I want to take one of them and just update it and do like basically essentially a version 2.0. So so that whoever buys the book tomorrow will have the latest latest stuff in there. So that's one thing I do. Um, I do a lot of work for for companies in terms of websites, um, content for them. They're sort of the new magazines, uh, like like Waves for example. They're always interested in applications for their plugins. And I write a lot of articles for them on how to use the plugins. And what's, and same with IK, a uh, bunch of other companies. I, I still do manuals from time to time. But one of the interesting things about writing for companies is they give more editorial control than any magazine ever did. I mean, they really... Um, they just want the facts out there. They want the limitations mentioned so that people don't aren't disappointed. They want the pluses. They want the minuses. They want what works, what doesn't work. I mean, they really want it to be totally credible stuff, and that is such a joy, you know, to to be able to do that, um, and to be able to apply things incorrectly and say, hey, here's a really good use for this thing, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right, okay, and they'll and they'll publish it. So those are are a lot of the things that I do. I still do consulting. Uh, Like I said, I just did this patch set for for Line 6. I just started a new website called craiganderton.org. And that's my educational website. I'm compiling my articles there. And then I also have a digital storefront uh, on Reverb.com called craiganderton.com. And that's where you can buy my books, my sample libraries, presets. uh, And there's going to be more products coming out so I'm just, uh, you know, ramping up stuff like that. Like, for example, I have a whole bunch of impulses for uh, convolution reverbs, and I have not taken the approach of, you know, sampling cathedrals and, and famous concert halls, but I've been creating impulses from scratch using white noise and filtering and amplitude changes. So these are like uh, my my theme of CGI reverb, these are like you listen to this <laughs> reverb and you think, oh, my God, this is like the most perfect reverb ever, you know, because it's like uh, it's I mean, it doesn't exist in real life, but it's uh, it's not an algorithmic reverb and it's not a convolution real space. It's a uh, it's a hybrid of the two. So I'm I'm always trying to come up with, with different angles that way for the products. Same thing with the sample libraries. I came up with one called uh, Electronic Ear Candy. And it's uh, 2.2 gigabytes of material that's designed to accessorize uh, EDM compositions and DJ tracks and things like that. It's not a construction kit. These are the things that you add uh, when you're three minutes into the song and it's starting to lose interest. You know, they like little rhythmic things, little little things you can layer in there to make it more interesting. Little percussion parts or whatever. So I'm I'm always looking for for unusual angles for things, things where there's not a lot of competition or there's a hole. I mean, electronic projects for musicians was that way. There really wasn't anything like that. So um, yeah. So basically, it's it's a bunch of different things. But uh, the easiest way to know what I'm up to is again, CraigAnderton.org is where I put the articles. I I have a Twitter feed. Um, it's Craig underscore Anderton. Uh, I'm sort of on Facebook and Instagram (laughs) and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I do all those things. I have, I have my YouTube uh, channel, youtube.com slash the Craig Anderton, because somebody already had Craig Anderton, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, amongst all those things, they, they all add up to something.
0: Harmony Central. How did your role there come about?
1: Well, that was, that was interesting too, um, I've spent a lot of my time now that I think about it working with companies that are not capable of change, and that was um, there was a company there was a website called MusicPlayer.com, which was started by the same people who who owned Keyboard and and EQ and EM and all that. A guy named Paul Gallo and Marty Porter back in New York, and they were very forward-thinking individuals, and they saw the potential of the web, and they they really got it off the ground and made MusicPlayer.com happen. And it became attractive enough that another company ended up buying their publishing company and ended up buying the site and really didn't know what to do with it. They didn't realize that it didn't work the same way as publishing. And um, I was getting rather disgruntled with the way things were going. And uh, Harmony Central uh, was that the people that started that were getting tired of it. I was getting tired of musicplayer.com and musician's friend wanted to have discussion forums where people could talk about gear uh, to make informed buying decisions, among other things. But it was a very um, very non-mercenary application they had in mind. It was very much like, hey, how can we help people? Oh, the easiest way to help people is put up forms, let them talk about stuff and not censor it. And so they were very enlightened about then and they thought, well, you know, we need an editor. <laughs> so they said, would you, would you be interested in taking over Harmony Central? So I was like, yeah, that's, that, that, that's great. And then uh, that ended up getting, you know, Musician's Friend ended up getting folded into Guitar Center, and Guitar Center, you know, for all its strength and brick and mortar, didn't really understand online. So again, it was back to the point of like, you know, well, what what do we need a website for, kind of thing. And there were some platform changes that I really objected to that were that were problematic and all that. So um, I kind of went underground for a while, and uh, you know, I, I got. Then, of course, I wasn't with Gibson anymore, which had bought Harmony Central. And now MusicPlayer.com, Future Publishing, uh, had acquired the remains of MusicPlayer.com because they bought the publishing company that had bought it out. And much to their credit, uh, they gave the ownership back to a guy named Dave Bryce who had kept the keyboard corner for him. MusicPlayer.com alive all these years flying under the radar of all these corporate people who didn't even know that it still existed, but he kept that community alive and well and vital. And, uh, he approached future music and said, Hey, how about you just give me the content and the name and the forums. And I got to say, man, it was great. Cause they said, you know, yeah, you know what you're doing. This isn't our thing. This is great. Vaya con Dios and have fun. You know, it was really cool. I mean, you know, the other thing, I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're aware of this, but my whole online thing started in 1995 with AOL. I had a a microsite on there called Craig Anderton Sound Studio and Stage. And AOL loved me when they were charging by the hour because (laughs) there were people downloading samples and discussing stuff. And they invited me down to their corporate retreat in Arizona and gave me an award for community building. And I was like the golden boy and I was wonderful. And they were saying, this is how you build a community and blah, blah, blah. And then they went to the flat rate. And then the next day I was persona non grata. <laughs> and they were like, either you need to sell things or you need to get out of here. I'm like, wait a minute. So you're basically telling me to leave because I'm too successful. And I was like, yeah, that's that's kind of it. So, um, so Sound Studio and Stage went underground for a few years. Lynn Fuston, who's now with Sweetwater, he was an engineer in, in Nashville, hosted it. And uh, so Sound Studio and Stage continued and then it went over to Harmony Central, or went over to musicplayer.com and then it went over to Harmony Central and now it's on musicplayer.com again. And I'm actually quite excited about that. I think that the people who are running musicplayer.com are really enthusiastic, they understand the web. It's picked up uh, Steve Fortner. He's working with musicplayer.com. He was the former editor of Keyboard Magazine. It has Mike Melinda who worked on Guitar Player. It has me, it has like Grammy-winning mastering engineers doing forums and things like that. Where it's gonna go, we don't really know. He only got the rights back, gosh, a month and a half ago, something like that. And how how it's gonna monetize itself, we really don't know. Uh, but it's a very exciting time because it's getting a really good response and a lot of manufacturers are taking note, you know, they're looking at it. So I think that we're going to probably be able to get advertising and that kind of thing. So that's, what's, that's, what's happening in in web world these days.
0: Music education has always been a difficult sell in public schools. In your role as evangelist at Gibson, did you have any insight into this?
1: Uh, yes and no at Gibson, I, first of all, I I was at Gibson for four and a half years. Um, it was, it's the first and only job I've ever had. Um, but I figured I should at least have a job before I die, you know, at some point. (laughs) So I actually had a job, you know, I, you know, it's like the first time I, I uh, opened up a paycheck and saw that I had medical insurance paid for and my taxes taken out. It's like, Oh, I see why people have jobs. I get it. (laughs) Um, and, but the thing is, is that I was, I was hired basically um, to be useful in a variety of ways. And, uh, you know, I, people will, people will tell you horror stories about Gibson. And it, it was a difficult environment in some ways, but it was also very challenging. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot. And I did everything from circuit design to uh, putting out – doing ad copy web copy things like that i I got actually i did some merger and acquisition stuff i actually got into offering memorandums and and those kinds of things was pretty high level corporate stuff um but the evangelist aspect was more about evangelizing the company because there was a thing called the gibson foundation which has just kind of like come back into being now Mm -hmm. um and that was involved in, that was kind of a self-running entity that could take care of things itself. I mean, I was involved with the Tennessee Teachers, uh, our Teachers Association, getting guitars to be you know, sold off at auction to raise money. And, you know, Gibson was always very good about those things. About, um, But again, it was a situation where, you know, from what I can tell, I mean, most music educators have to have fundraisers just to have the you know, just have the ability to have equipment for their students, which I think is a yeah, a shockingly short-sighted thing. Especially when you see – I mean, I was over in Ch- – I've been over in China a couple times, actually. I went over with Gibson on, on one of them. And, um, you know, music education is huge there. It's huge in Japan. It's, it's, it's huge in a lot of places. I mean, my introduction to classical music was in fourth grade in Switzerland. And I'd come in and, and the teacher would – the class was – she played classical music and you closed your eyes and listened and then they talked about it afterwards, you know, and, and that was great, you know, and, um, I mean, the way I learned about classical music was I went to the library and every week I pull out four or five albums and I I'd find out which ones I liked and which ones I didn't. And again, it was the same kind of rule I was talking about before with like rap or rock or anything else. There were some that I just really bonded with and I thought was great. The other stuff I thought was really overrated, but it really, you know, I had a reference point of learning about music and learning about harmony. And, um, I think that the, the, the the, the the problem is that the arts aren't really taken that seriously in terms of education, despite all the studies that show how beneficial an education in the arts can be. Um, I mean, if you think about music for a second, think of how mathematical it is when you learn about music. I mean there's there's so much math involved, especially when you're working with software, you know frequencies and and track counts and beats and measures and you know time signatures and and, and all that. And harmonic relationships. Uh, and all these things. I mean, if you, yeah. a lot of the best programmers, there, there's a real correlation between good programmers and musicians. You know, people like Roger Powell, um, you know, who was a keyboard player for Todd Rundgren and oh, some yeah, other Utopia. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Utopia. I mean, he, he ended up working at Apple, you know. And um, it's, it's amazing how many hotshot programmers. Are pretty good musicians you know and i think that there's a real correlation there you it's it's like music has a fixed instruction set you know and how you combine it determines how the software turns out
0: yeah that's interesting i i think that's part of the reason why so many engineers and math majors like bach <laughs> it's so uh-huh. mathematical
1: well yeah i mean it is and of course the things we don't really know how that music was played. I mean, there's no, obviously there's no recordings of it. And, um, you know, I've, I've, for example, the Brandenburgs are great, but the, my favorite recording of the Brandenburgs was done by some no name Eastern European orchestra. Cause I felt that they took it at the right tempo. They weren't showing off, you know, they weren't, they weren't playing the fast stuff as fast as they could and saying, Oh, hey, look how fast I can play the violin. You know, they were like, they really put soul into the, into the thing. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that, I mean, I'd love to see, well, there's a lot of things in education that, you know, that, that really need to be overhauled, uh, but definitely the arts is one of them. And I think that if the arts were overhauled, it would lead to other beneficial things, but we may never find out because of the way budgets are constantly getting cut and all that. It's 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 a shame, you know, it's, it's a real shame. But again, look at China, you know, um, look at what they do with their educational system.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I feel fortunate that I I went to a high school that had a music program and an electronics program, which is unheard of these days. Well, maybe not the electronics part, but.
1: Well, you um, will. I mean, there there are, you know, there are marching band programs and stuff, but they're like a subsidiary wing of their football program, really, more than (laughs) a music program.
0: Yes. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I've taken quite a bit of your time. Is there any in closing you want to say anything that comes to your mind
1: um yeah i really wish people would push more you know i, I wish that i mean the, the whole point of this is is to be inspired the whole point of this is to go on a journey of self-discovery when you listen back to your tracks you should know more about yourself than when you started you know the idea of like oh, i'm going to play music and and make it it's just it's a disservice to what music can actually do. If you can make it, that's great, you know, but music is such a, a a discovery. I mean, I think the music that I'm making now is the best music I've ever made, but I would have said that five years ago or 10 years ago, because I keep learning, I keep pushing, I keep trying to come up with, with new things. And I would really encourage people to look at everything in a different light and to draw upon sources for inspiration and to really try to think about you know what they can express, and the other thing that I would really emphasize is, don't overthink any of this stuff the um, I've really put a lot of effort lately into having a studio situation where I don't have to think i mean i I very much understand the difference between how the how the hemispheres work in the brain, and I want to stay in that right brain zone as much as possible. and um, these days, you know. I can't even think of the idea of having a, a creative block. I just sit down and I play guitar, or I play keyboards, and I hit record and something comes out, you know. If I'm not thinking too hard, something comes out that's good. And then I take that and I copy it and I create another verse and then it leads me to something else. I I might like have a really good idea for a chorus, for example. And I don't think, oh, oh, I better record a verse first. I better record an intro. No, I just record the chorus. These are nonlinear recording devices. I record the chorus. I may even finish the chorus. I may put on like bass and drums and, and guitars and keyboards and voice and effects. And um, I play that over and over again and it implies what's going to come next. And then all of a sudden I have a song. The other thing is that uh, I really think cinematically as much as possible I I try to have large sounds, I try to have sound effects, I try to create as visual an experience as I can. One of the best movies I think to see uh, in terms of music is The Greatest Showman, the way that they weave the music and the movie together. Is you know whether you like the movie or not, or whether you like the music or not, doesn't matter. It's it's cinematically done music, you know, and that's something that that can benefit. I mean, I have exploding snare drums that happen in a breaker. I'm into doing tempo changes a lot, like just very slight ones. But I've learned how to apply tempo changes after the fact to something I recorded with a click, so I can have like little speed up and slow down. I've studied a lot of the older music, you know. Quote, classic rock before the days of click tracks and they all had tempo variations and they were not random they were definitely. i mean they were when you plot what the changes are in tempo they're very deliberate they run up to the chorus they come, they pull back <clears throat> they do things just before a solo there's a, a linear upward change throughout the song all these things is what gave the songs character you know and it's easy enough to just put on a click track and record at 120 beats per minute or whatever, but that's not what music is about. You know, music is about expression and when you can have that slight speed up, it just makes all the difference in the world. Hitting the snare drum a few milliseconds late or a few milliseconds early, or, you know, any of these things, uh, people need to question how they can progress with music and how they can take it further and how they can really, really serve it, you know? This is something that I mean, music music is its own entity it really is and it's something that you participate in um, you don't make music the music is out there and you extract it and the, the better and more efficient you can make that extraction process and the more truthful it can be and the closer it is to that source of inspiration then the better the music is that you're going to end up making and the more the, the better time you'll have making it
0: wow that's great Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Craig. And uh, if people want to find out more, you mentioned the website, CraigAnderton.com. Is Is that correct?
1: Well, CraigAnderton.com is the commercial site, the digital storefront. And CraigAnderton.org is the educational site. Uh, where you know everything's free, and there's a bunch of articles and uh, videos and things like that. And I'm going to start adding lessons to it over the course of next year. Uh, not yet, but I'm going to have complete courses on there, and people will be able to uh, people will be able to learn through actual lessons. So um, yeah, you know, that's that's something I'm looking forward to doing next. That's going to be one of my future projects. Thank you for
0: listening to the Sonic Nuance Electronics podcast. For high fidelity custom tuner DI's, switching pedals and instrument patch and headphone extension cables sold direct from the shop to you, please visit sonicnuance.com. Welcome to the Sonic Nuance Electronics Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with internationally recognized authority on music and technology, Craig Anderton. Craig is a true renaissance man who has published over 35 books, played on over 20 major label